Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's international tax practice and formerly an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. On this episode of the podcast, we'll be exploring recent proposals from the White House and the Senate Finance Committee that could dramatically change the U.S. international tax system again. I'm delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues here at KPMG, John Gimigliano and Seth Green. John is the principal in charge of the Federal Tax Legislative and Regulatory Services Group in the Washington National Tax Practice of KPMG. Prior to joining KPMG, John was Senior Tax Counsel for the Committee on Ways and Means and Staff Director for the Subcommittee on Select Revenue Measures and the U.S. House of Representatives. John is also the host of KPMG's Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a weekly podcast where KPMG's professionals discuss current developments in Washington. Seth Green is a principal and co-head of the International Tax Group of the Washington National Tax Practice here at KPMG. Many, many moons ago, Seth was an attorney advisor in the Office of the Tax Legislative Council at the Treasury Department. John and Seth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Gary. Happy to be here. John, let's start with you. Ever since the Georgia runoffs, all eyes have turned to the possibility of Tax Reform 2.0, but there's been little in the way of legislative action up until a couple weeks ago. Then on March 31st, President Biden announced his Made in America tax plan, and only days later, Senator Wyden, the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, released a white paper that provides a framework for overhauling the U.S. international tax system. John, the ball seems to be rolling now. Could you tell us where we are in the legislative process? Well, that's a good question. Where are we in the legislative process? You were specific about the legislative process. So if we're specifically talking about legislation, we're really nowhere in that. What we've seen have been just the broadest of brushstrokes, at least visibly. But I think it's reasonable to assume that we're further along than might be apparent that I would be stunned if the Senate Finance Committee staff wasn't actually drafting legislation that looks like something like we saw in Chairman Wyden's white paper. And frankly, even though Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Richie Neal, has been incredibly quiet, which I find interesting, I wouldn't be surprised at all if his staff is working on its own version. So I think things are happening below the surface, but on the surface, it's very high level. But I'll just remind you, in 2017, when we went through the TCJA, not much happened until September. And then if you recall, at the end of September, we got sort of this very brief white paper that came out from the chair of the Senate Finance Committee and from the administration that gave us the broadish brushstrokes. But if you went back and looked at that, in the end, the TCJA ended up looking pretty consistent with what they released. So I think we should take the things that we've seen so far, especially from the administration, uh, but to a certain extent from Chairman Wyden very seriously as well. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about timeline. I'd heard possibly on your own podcast that it was unlikely that legislation would pass until later this year, perhaps in the fall. But now I'm hearing that this may come sooner than expected. What's changed? The Senate parliamentarian really threw all this into doubt the other week when she made a ruling about the Senate budgetary process. 
that changed, I think, our understanding of the way budget reconciliation works is to go back to your original point. Yes, I did believe that November or December were the most likely date, especially for the corporate rate increases. And I might still think that, although maybe with less conviction than I previously did, you know, we always assumed it would take a long time to get this done. If for no other reason is that the Democrats were going to use budget reconciliation and in using budget reconciliation for the fiscal year 2022 budget, the Democrats were going to have to write a complete budget. And that's never easy. There was going to be a lot of negotiation between the House and the Senate around that. And it would probably take them all spring and summer to get done. They would leave for August and come back and really begin in earnest in negotiating the tax bill, the underlying bill then, which would take until November or December. What changed is that the Senate parliamentarians ruling said that you can amend or revise an existing budget and in doing so, you get another budget reconciliation potentially. So what that gives the Democrats the ability to do now is to amend the fiscal year 2021 budget that they used to pass the bill a couple of weeks ago, ARPA, and amend that to potentially unlock another budget reconciliation, which could happen much sooner than having to wait all summer, that they could unlock that within weeks, which at least gives them the possibility of trying to push really hard on a tax bill this summer, or at least getting it done in early fall, not late fall. So that's that's what kind of changed our thinking around this, although I still do believe that that November or December timeline is still my best guess of when we would be likely to see something. We're going to talk about specifics of the proposals in a bit, but do you see any potential bumps in the road here? Anything that could slow or even stop the momentum towards tax reform, or is this is this inevitable? Nothing is inevitable in Washington, right? I mean, we've learned that over the years. There is nothing that is inevitable. There's never a 100% chance of anything. There's not a 100% chance Congress will show up on any given day. So no. And you think about all the things that can go wrong. There are many. We could have a dip in the economy again, which would potentially have a number of members of Congress say, now's not the time to raise taxes. We could have a rebound, hopefully we don't, of the pandemic. We could have an international crisis of some sort. There are many things that can go wrong. Maybe even just stimulus fatigue could undermine the possibility of doing another bill. So, no, nothing is certain. But I do think, on balance, that Democrats are highly motivated to do this. They've got the means to get it done procedurally, and they've put in enough work in terms of what it would look like structurally, the tax increases, et cetera. I do think, you know, on balance, they're likely to do something this year. Thanks, John. So let's turn to the substance of the proposals and turn to Seth for this. The Biden and Wyden plans both attempt to fix international tax provisions adopted in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the TCGA, though sometimes in significantly different ways. There's a lot to digest here, so let's take each provision in order. First, guilty. Seth, what have Biden and Wyden proposed here? Well, so here, and I'd even say really across the board, there's not a ton of daylight between them. The significance of the differences is more in what they've chosen to stress and where they've chosen to give us more and less information. So on guilty, they both want to raise the rate. Biden is very specific. He says the corporate rate's going to 28 and guilty is going to 75% of that 28 or 21 that would be a 25% Section 250 deduction to get from 28 to 21. Wyden's a little bit more flexible. He says you could have a Section 250 deduction that's in a range. It could be as low as zero. It could be as high as 40%. We don't know, but he leaves a range, but they're both sending it up. And Biden's just 
picked a number and widened said, we'll find a range. Similarly, they're both saying that deemed tangible income return, QBI, the thing that says we're going to find this normal rate on your invested capital, that's just gone. It's, it's, it's gone in both of them. And they both have a notion of country by country, of eliminating the ability to blend the U.S. tax consequences of your offshore operations in high and low tax countries. On that point, again, Biden just says we're going to do a country by country thing. He doesn't really tell us what that country by country thing is going to be. Whereas Wyden says, well, you know, there are a couple of different ways to do this. We could just have a country by country 904 limitation for guilty, just do it all through the foreign tax credit. Or we could do it by taking the high tax exception that was grafted on to guilty by regs under the Trump administration. We could make that mandatory and at a different rate. And that would, I think this is absolutely true in certain circumstances and in certain ways that would operate very much like a country by country approach. He doesn't give all the details of how that would work. And I think there are some devils to be had in those details, but it could be done. Again, he paints more of a picture. Biden just says something and stops, but we don't really have the details on either. Thanks, Seth. And there's obviously a lot of specifics to fill in with guilty, and I I think we'll see more in the pipeline. Let's turn to FIDI. Before the Wyden and Biden plans were released, we had heard very little chatter about the future of FIDI, and for good reason, who would dare to eliminate the so-called Made in America tax break? What have Biden and Wyden proposed on FIDI? So again, on the face of it, it does seem pretty different, but I'm not sure if you scratch below the surface, there's a whole lot of room between them. So Biden says, fitty has gone. We're getting rid of fitty. We're going to come up with a new set of incentives to make sure that R&D and management and other good things happen here in the United States. Wyden explicitly keeps the fitty structure, or at least suggests explicitly that he's keeping the FIDI structure by saying that we're going to replace foreign-derived intangible income with deemed innovation income. So we got to keep the same DII thing. But that what gives rise to the good category of income is going to be changed. And again, he seems to be focusing on some of the same kinds of activities that Biden says he wants to incentivize. He he focuses on R&D, he focuses on worker training, uh, other things that you would want to have happen in the United States. So I'm not sure at the end of the day if we're going to focus on things like R&D, if we're going to focus on things like worker training. Biden doesn't tell us how his is going to work. Wyden doesn't tell us how we're going to do this computation of finding the income that's attributable to those expenses. The fact that Wyden keeps some of the FIDI mechanics, I think, is perhaps less significant than the fact that they're both changing the focus away from explicit, just is it an exported product? We'll see where it all goes, but I think there may be less differences there than meets the eye and a lot of details left to be filled in. Can I make an observation on that? Because it's like the, the fate of Fiddy is so interesting. And for, you're right. For so long, we just assumed nothing would happen. I mean, part of me thinks that one of the reasons that Wyden includes the same acronym and adds innovation is to keep what is obviously the coolest, maybe the only cool tax acronym in the entire Internal Revenue Code is one reason. But the other important thing to remember is that Bernie Sanders released a piece of legislation and in itself, 
maybe not that notable. He's not on the Senate Finance Committee, and there's maybe not a lot of reason to pay attention to it. But one of the things that Senator Sanders did do, which is incredibly useful, is he released his Joint Committee of Taxation Revenue Estimate along with it, a private letter sent to him, but he released it publicly to show us what the revenue raised from the repeal of FIDI is. And I think it shocked everybody. It shocked me that repealing FIDI raises $225 billion, which is a lot more than I think people thought. And that raises two questions, which is, one, is that too big of a target to pass up when they're trying to raise revenue to pay for infrastructure. The second one is the things you talked about, Seth, is how we're going to reimagine FIDI or some sort of innovation incentive. Do they intend to spend that $225 billion exclusively on that replacement, or do they just want to throw a little money towards it and use the rest towards paying for infrastructure? Those are really important questions we're going to have to see play out. I think that's a really good point, John. This isn't just about policy. This is about paying for And at the end of the day, even if the FIDI, because it's such a wonderful acronym, but also such a wonderful benefit to taxpayers, even if it's a policy matter, you don't want to get rid of FIDI, the revenue that FIDI produces by repealing it and replacing it with something else could be too hard to resist. Seth, how about the provision that everyone loves to hate, the BEAT? Again, another provision we hadn't heard much about on the campaign trail. So a couple things. First of all, I just want to point out, I actually think as a matter of acronym writing, BEAT actually beats FIDI. Um, we, we may not like the provision as much, but it's a pretty cool acronym. That being said, everybody does love to hate it, and for good reasons, although recall its predecessor, the BAT, was hated by at least some, at least as much. But BEAT, I think, it's an ugly beast. I think it's relatively clear. Its origins were, John was just talking about dialing for dollars in a sense. Its origins were they were trying to plug a number in TCJA and they had this notion they wanted to do something around base erosion and outbound payments. And so they started adding tweaks to the basic idea of an outbound payment regime until they found one that raised the amount of money they wanted. It's really hard to justify the various different parts of BEAT with any overarching policy considerations, which is why both Biden and Wyden would substantially change it. So Biden would replace it in its entirety, replace it with what they're calling SHIELD, which I will admit is a pretty cool acronym in and of itself. So in Biden, we'd replace it with the SHIELD, And the shield has really two parts, one of which is kind of a supercharged disallowance deduction based on the tax rate of the recipient. So that's consistent with elements of BEPS 2.0. You could view it as a turbocharged beat. You could view it as really a turbocharged 267. But however you look at it, it is a flat out related party deduction disallowance provision. It fits in a sense with a lot of things we've seen before, but it's really, really harsh. And then that would be supplemented with some anti-inversion provisions to take the inversion percentage down to 50% to have a per se rule if the inverted company is managed and controlled in the US. Wyden would keep more of the beat mechanics He'd keep, in fact, most of the beat mechanics. He'd create a a second rate bracket. But most importantly, what he would do, which does undo a lot of the very troubling aspects of the beat. There's still others, but the biggest troubling aspects of the beat are the way it interacts with credits. That paying a dollar of incremental expense to cross the beat threshold, suddenly you lose 
all of your credits. And Wyden addresses that by making beat grind down your credits, your foreign tax credits and your domestic business credits. He makes that, or at least he tells us he's going to make that a lot less onerous. Again, don't have all the details, but the implication is you're going to get to keep those credits by and large, making beat bite a lot less hard. Biden's proposal for the shield, the minimum tax rate for the shield is based on either the guilty rate, which the proposal for that is 21%, or the rate reached by a multilateral agreement, presumably based on the work coming out of the OECD. So that was an interesting aspect of the Biden proposal is it seems to be explicitly relying on or anticipating work from the OECD. We're going to have a future episode dedicated entirely to the OECD work in light of these tax proposals. But do you have any initial observations on the relationship between particularly Biden's proposal and the OSD work on Pillar 1 and Pillar 2? Clearly, they are connected. As you point out, there's a reference in the kind of shield proposal to a multilateral outcome. The Biden administration just this past week presented before the OECD, clearly pushing really hard on Pillar 2, which is basically the global min tax recognizing that Pillar 2 doesn't work without Pillar 1, so they're committed to Pillar 1 as well. But again, I think on on the U.S., they're more focused on Pillar 2 than Pillar 1, and Pillar 1 is how we get there. Not only the Treasury Department kind of tax professionals, but even Secretary Yellen herself have spoken about the importance of the OECD and the BEPS 2.0 process. So this is something that the administration cares about, and they are clearly kind of trying to coordinate their domestic political agenda with what they want to get through the OECD. Now, that's a really hard needle to thread. As you said, we're going to have others talking about the OECD process, which is very complicated in and of itself. But to steer Congress and the OECD simultaneously in the same direction towards the same outcome, that's a heck of a challenge. And we'll see how they do at it. Are there any other proposals in the Biden and Wyden plans that could impact U.S. multinationals that we haven't discussed yet? One big one, which I think people maybe are periodically overlooking, and I don't know whether they should or they shouldn't, is the Biden proposal to have a minimum tax based on book. So basically think about AMT, go all the way back to the the adjusted corporate earnings, the ACE rules in in the AMT. It's coming back. we're being told is going to apply at 15%. It's going to have some of the elements of the old AMT, which is the timing thing. If your taxable income exceeded your book, you got kind of a carry forward and you can earn back out of the minimum tax you've paid if that happens in the future. It could get really complicated really fast. The most recent release is suggesting it would only apply to a relative handful of the biggest companies in the country. I don't know if that's a feature or a bug, depending on your own view of things, but I think they scored as raising quite a significant amount of money, even if it is only from that small number of companies, and even if it may only be a timing issue. So I think if you are in that universe of, I think, what was it, about 40 companies or so that they would expect to be hit by that minimum book tax, I think you have to care a lot because they're showing serious numbers from it. And as John has told us, this is at least as much about numbers as it is about policy. And so you can't but think they're going to want to make the numbers work out the way they've told us that they're going to. 
Yeah, one of the interesting things about this proposal is we kept waiting for it to go away. I mean, there was so much broad skepticism out there that they would actually pull through and push this one through, and it hasn't gone away. And I guess we shouldn't be surprised because candidate Biden and then President Biden has talked about this almost every time he gives a speech. And as much as I'd like to think this is uh, President Biden just riffing on tax policy, I'm pretty sure somebody who was writing that speech is putting it in his speech every time. I think it was an indication of something that sort of the people working on tax policy inside the administration take this very seriously. So I think we will continue to hear about this and we'll probably get more detail when we ultimately see the Green Book. But to put it in context, because I think the numbers matter, they're saying there's about 45 companies that would be caught by this rule. And they say the average company facing it would pay 300 million a year. That's a lot of money when you multiply that together. If I'm doing the math right in my head, that's what, $12 billion a year? I don't see that as going away unless they find that $12 billion somewhere else. Times 10 gets you to what, roughly 120, which is right on par with what the original revenue estimate from this provision was, is stuck in my head, by the Tax Policy Center estimated of raising 108 billion over 10. So that sounds about right, Seth. John, let's pivot and talk effective dates. We, we talked about timing that the bill would get passed, but this is a different question. If the bill gets passed, let's say this summer or fall, when could we expect the provisions to be effective? Neither the Biden nor the Wyden plan gets that granular about effective dates. Any chance these rules are effective for 2021 tax years or maybe as of the date of enactment? You know, and I'm going to answer this. The chances of anything happening are never zero in Washington. So it could. And we, we have that 1993 precedent that is out there, an ominous one of the Bill Clinton's big tax increase bill in his first year in office. I think it was enacted in August of 93, and it was retroactive back to January 1st, including a corporate rate increase and a number of other provisions. However, in that year, there were drafts floating around as early as May with that January 1st date. So I think they felt that the world was on notice. Now, we might still get something like that, but I really don't think that that's what Democrats are looking to do here is to do a retroactive or even a date of enactment effective date. I think we are far more likely to get prospective effective dates. I think Secretary Yellen kind of indicated as much in her confirmation hearing. So that's my guess. But with one human humongous caveat, which is we could have a prospective effective date with, alongside, retroactive anti-abuse provisions, some sort of provision that would Congress was aware of or expected or suspected an abusive provision to get out from under the intent of the provision, that they could include a retroactive anti-abuse provision to make it harder or impossible to do those tax planning transactions. And, you know, the example that people point to, which I think is a reasonable one, it's not exactly on point, but it's sort of along the same lines, is what happened in 2017 with the EMP calcs for 965, that they had a date prior to the end of the year that sort of prevented people from doing planning, it could be something along the lines of that. Funny you say out from under there, John, because I'd also point out, I think there's a difference between rates and, and structural type provisions and ones that are a little bit more transactionally oriented. So for example, we talked about part of shield is an anti-inversion rule. I would not be at all surprised to see that drop with a date of enactment or possibly even date of announcement type provision to slam the door on people who are thinking about beating the effective date, because that's a you know a one and done situation as opposed to a tax rate or the structure of the guilty system. Those are more tax years, ongoing, forevermore type issues where I tend to agree with you that a, a more prospective one one 
2022 seems more likely, although I think you're also right that an eye on what might happen that they don't like if they use that approach, that they're going to have an eye on that as well. Seth, what should multinationals be thinking about now in preparation for potential tax reform under either the Wyden or Biden plans? I got a couple of observations to make. So the first one is we don't know what's going to happen. And that includes this conversation we just had about what effective dates might be. So don't do anything thinking you know the outcome. So what does that tell you? That tells you you need to, whatever you're thinking about doing, you need to evaluate a range of possible outcomes and do things that you think are going to be basically no regrets or at least minimal regrets, that even the kind of worst case outcome you reasonably foresee is not going to leave you in a horrible place. But in best case scenario, tax rates go up the most and I've somehow avoided the worst of that bite. That's the best case scenario is you, is you avoid the worst of the bite. You just have to make sure that in doing so, you haven't put yourself in a materially worse place. And in doing that, you need to model a range of possible outcomes of what the law change might be, effective dates might be, what your own future income flows and performance might be. Because you know we can't predict the future with perfection, whether it's about the law or about even our own businesses. So again, you got to model. Model, 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 model a range of outcomes and focus on the downside every bit as much as the upside. John, do you have any departing observations? Well, just one, and it's not so much what was in this 19-page document that we got this week. It was what was not in there. At least I don't think it was, and you all tell me if I missed it. But if you recall, candidate Biden had an offshoring jobs penalty. It was a 10% surtax on top of the Right. Look, we never quite understood how it worked. We believed it had to do with provision of sales or services into the U.S., that the income derived from that would get hit with the 10% surtax. I don't see it in there. It doesn't mean it's completely gone and maybe it'll show up in the green book. For now, though, it seems to have dropped off the radar. And I don't know if that's because they decided they don't need it or that maybe they can't make it work. Seth, John, thank you so much for joining us today and to all of you for tuning in. There's certainly no shortage of things to watch out for over the coming days and months, both domestically and abroad, that could have an impact on the U.S. international tax system. Hopefully you can join us for future episodes of KPMG Inside International Tax as we continue to monitor these developments. And do yourself a favor and check out John's excellent podcast, Catching Up on Capitol Hill, for additional legislative developments. Until our next episode, take care. Thank you.